Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. For this episode, we have another debate for you. But first, a quick announcement. Uh, I, Justin Schieber, have been invited by the Atheist and Agnostics Group at University of Alberta in Edmonton to debate Christian philosopher and apologist Michael Horner on the existence of the Christian God. This event will take place on Thursday, January 23rd, and will be held at the Centennial Center for Interdisciplinary Sciences in Lecture Theater 1430. The doors will open at 6, and the event will begin at 6.30, uh, there's a $2 admission that will go to benefit uh, Doctors Without Borders. So if you or someone you know lives in the area, please help spread the word. I would really appreciate it. So this episode's debate topic is, is belief in God irrational? Now this debate was not a live debate. Rather, it was a series of audio exchanges that took place in late 2013. The exchanges were according to agreed-upon time limitations for each section, Uh, For each of their several sections, the debaters were given at least a week to analyze, script, and record their entries before submitting it to their opponent. Uh, Each submission has been edited together in the agreed-upon order for your listening interest. Uh, As one speaker ends, the next will follow without interruption. So 20 minutes have been granted to each debater for opening statements, followed by 15 minutes for each debater for first rebuttals, then 10 minutes for each for a second round of rebuttals, and for uh, five minutes for the closing statements for each. Answering the question, is belief in God irrational in the affirmative, is Chris Hallquest. After dropping out of the top PhD program for philosophy of religion on the planet, Chris Hallquist spent several years wandering the country and the world before moving to the Bay Area to become a software engineer. He blogs at The Incredible Hulk on the Patheos Network, spelled H-A-L-L-Q, Uh, in addition to being a frequent contributor to the group blog Less Wrong. The negative position will be uh, represented by Randall Rouser. Randall is a professor of historical theology at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, Canada, and is the author of several books, including uh, Theology in Search of Foundations, Oxford University Press, 2009, The Swedish Atheist, The Scuba Diver, and Other Apologetic Rabbit Trails, uh, and God or Godless, Baker, 2013. Uh, a collection of debates with atheist John Loftus. Randall also regularly blogs as the Tentative Apologist, and you can visit him online at randallrouser.com. And now here is Chris Hallquist with his opening statement for why he believes belief in God is irrational. I'd like to thank Randall for agreeing to do this debate with me, and Justin Schieber for organizing it. The topic of the debate is, Is Belief in God Irrational? By God, I take it we mean an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good being. That's fairly uncontroversial, since in addition to being the standard definition given in Philosophy 101 classes, it's a definition that's been endorsed by prominent theistic philosophers such as William Lane Craig and Richard Swinburne. In fact, I'll quote Craig paraphrasing Swinburne on this. Richard Swinburne, a prominent Christian philosopher, treats God as a proper name of the person referred to by the following description, a person without a body, i.e. a spirit, who necessarily is eternal, perfectly free, omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly good, and the creator of all things. 
This description expresses the traditional concept of God in Western philosophy and theology. What we mean by rational or irrational isn't as widely agreed on, but I take it that when we talk about rationality, we're talking about basing beliefs on evidence and being able to change your mind based on new evidence for the sake of making it more likely that your beliefs will be true. The reason I think this is a good way to talk about rationality is because most people care about whether or not their beliefs are true, and if that's your goal, it's important to avoid treating debates about rationality as if they're about showing it's okay to go on believing whatever you already believe. The problem is that if you originally believe something for reasons that aren't very rational, odds are it's not going to be true, and if it's not true, no amount of arguing that it's okay to believe after all what make, will make it true. The only way to go from having false beliefs to having true beliefs is to be willing to change your mind. Now, it's pretty clear that most people, if they're religious, don't base their religious beliefs on any kind of rational reasoning. Mostly, people's religion is whatever their parents was, and in the case of adult converts, sociologist Rodney Stark has found that their conversions are mostly based on the influence of friends and family. In other words, people base their religious beliefs on what people around them believe. But that's not a very rational approach to deciding what to believe, because as we all know, lots of people believing something is a poor indicator of whether or not it's true. But some people do claim to have rational reasons for their belief in God, so I'm going to spend quite a bit of time talking about arguments for and against the existence of God I'll start by talking about what's probably the best-known argument against the existence of God, the argument from evil. Here's a very simple version of the argument. Philosopher Bruce Russell has an article where he talks about a case that happened in Michigan where, early one New Year's Day, a five-year-old girl was raped, severely beaten over most of her body, and strangled to death. Now, I'd like Randall and all the believers listening to this to ask themselves a question. Do you think an all-powerful, loving God would have prevented the murder of the little girl in Michigan? I think for most people, even most believers, their initial reaction is to say yes. But of course, saying yes is incompatible with belief in an all-powerful, loving God. So believers must say no, but then the question is what reason they have for saying no. Do they have any reason beyond prior commitment to belief in God? In my experience, it's almost impossible to get a straight answer from religious believers on that question. They're much more likely to just change the subject. When believers talk about the argument from evil, they tend to end up focusing on other questions that don't pose as serious a challenge to their faith. But if you want to be rational, if you really care about the truth, you have to be willing to confront your belief's real weak points. Now, I'm aware of the many responses to the argument from evil that theistic philosophers have given. But I have to say I agree with Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga when he says that, quote, many of the attempts to explain why God permits evil, theodicies, as we might call them, seem to me shallow, tepid, and ultimately frivolous, end quote. Unlike Plantinga, I'd have to include his own favored response to the problem of evil, the free will defense, 
in the list of totally unsuccessful responses to the problem. The idea that an all-powerful, loving God would allow a five-year-old girl to be raped and murdered because of free will is absurd on its face. After all, if Randall or I were ever in a position to save a little girl from having something like that happen to her, worries about not interfering with the attacker's free will wouldn't make us hesitate for a second. In spite of the obvious weaknesses of his free-to-will defense, many theistic philosophers have claimed that there's a consensus among professional philosophers that Planning has vanquished the argument from evil, so believers needn't worry about it anymore. The truth is that no consensus exists. For example, David Lewis, a widely respected philosopher who died in 2001, writes, The most ambitious versions of the argument claim that the existence of evil is logically incompatible with the existence of an omnipotent, omniscient, and completely benevolent deity. In my view, even the most ambitious version succeeds conclusively. There is no evasion unless the standards of success are set unreasonably high. Those who try to escape the conclusion have to insist that no use can be made of disputed premises, however antecedently credible those premises may be. But philosophers can and do dispute anything. Some, for example, are prepared to argue about the law of non-contradiction. Lewis was not alone in his views. It's worth realizing that nearly three-quarters of professional philosophers are atheists, and less than 14% are theists, because you have to take the agnostics into account. That's not the kind of overwhelming consensus you see among experts on scientific issues like, say, evolution, but it's about as close to a consensus as you'll find in philosophy. While some atheist philosophers might think there's a worthwhile debate to be had over the problem of evil, I have talked to a number of professional philosophers who've privately expressed views similar to Lewis's, but think it would be a waste of their time to get involved debating the issue in philosophy journals. To be frank, the reason theistic philosophers can get away with claiming a consensus in their favor on the argument from evil is because they spend too much time talking only to each other. None of this is to say you need agree with Lewis just because he's Lewis, or that atheist philosophers must be right because they're in the majority. Nothing I'm arguing depends on either of those claims. I just want to preempt claims of a pro-theistic consensus in philosophy on the argument from evil or any other issue. Such claims are absurd, in spite of how often they're made. To summarize, I've just given a very simple version of the argument from evil. An all-powerful, loving God, if one existed, would prevent things like what happened to the girl in Michigan. But such things happen, so it follows that God does not exist. Next, I want to talk about a second argument. Philosopher Stephen Law sometimes gives talks where he'll ask the audience whether they think the universe could be the work of an all-powerful but evil creator. He calls this an evil god, a term which I ho hope isn't too confusing 
It just means a being who fits the standard definition of God, except for being evil instead of being good. When most people, including most religious believers, are asked to consider the possibility of an evil God, they say no. There's too much good in the world for it to be the work of an all-powerful evil creator. That sets up what law calls the evil God challenge for people who believe in the standard good God. If there's too much good in the world for the world to be the work of an evil God, why isn't it also true that there's too much evil in the world for it to be the work of a good God? The standard explanations of why a good God would allow evil can also be applied to explaining why an evil God would allow good. If you reject those kinds of explanations when applied to the evil God hypothesis, which I think most people do, it seems like you should also reject them when applied to the good God hypothesis. I think the standard responses to the argument from evil are just absurd on their face, even before you consider the possibility of an evil God. But if someone denies that, the evil God challenge provides a second challenge to them. If we can rule out the possibility of an evil God, what's different about the idea of a good God? The evil God challenge is particularly useful because it highlights the problems with many popular arguments for the existence of God, including the cosmological, ontological, and design arguments. That's because when you ask if those arguments help us distinguish between an evil God and a good God, the answer is they don't. To be clear, I think the problems with those arguments go much deeper than that. For example, I don't think the design argument succeeds in establishing any kind of designer. But as Hume pointed out, even if it did, the designer or designers could end up being much more like the ancient pagan gods than the standard monotheistic god. Or another example... Plantinga's famous modal ontological argument can be retooled into a quote-unquote proof that pigs fly. The way you do this is by arguing, possibly it's a necessary truth that pigs fly. Therefore, by the S5 axioms of modal logic, pigs fly. The reason to stress the evil God challenge, however, is that Asking whether an argument for the existence of God helps with the evil God challenge is useful as a very simple test for whether an argument comes anywhere close to showing what it claims to show. It's astonishing how many arguments fail that test. Are there any arguments for the existence of God that could overcome the evil God challenge? One candidate that might look promising at first is the moral argument, which is based on the claim that God is required in order for objective morality to exist. Unfortunately, I've never heard anything resembling a decent argument for that claim. In Randall's book with John Loftus, God or Godless, there's a chapter titled, quote, If there is no God, then everything is permitted, unquote where Randall's opening statement consists of a vignette 
about a serial killer. The implication, I take it, is that if there's no God, the serial killer's actions are permissible. But shockingly, Randall doesn't bother to argue for that claim anywhere in the chapter. In my experience, this is all too typical of theistic treatments of morality. They do nothing but play to the prejudices of the audience. Then there are arguments for specific religions, say specific to Christianity. For people who think they've got good arguments of this sort for their specific religion, there's another simple test you can do for whether the argument makes any sense at all. Ask yourself what you would think of a similar argument made in favor of a religion other than your own. To give an easy example, many Christians will make arguments to the effect of the Bible has to be the Word of God because it's such an amazing book and there's no way a book could be so great unless it were written by God. But Muslims say the same thing about the Quran. Mormons say the same thing about the Book of Mormon. Christians don't find those claims convincing. The Christians who claim the Bible is such an amazing book, it must be the Word of God, didn't reach that conclusion by carefully comparing the Bible to the Quran, Book of Mormon, and other works. They started with the conclusion and then tried to come up with a rational-sounding argument for what they originally believed for non-rational reasons. Among Christians, one of the most popular arguments that's specific to Christianity is the claim that the resurrection can be proven with historical evidence. But the historical evidence they're talking about is just the Bible, specifically the Gospels and a couple of Paul's letters. Some Christians who make this argument make a big show of claiming the support of other biblical scholars, but Biblical scholarship is an unusual field in being totally dominated by Christians and Jews. Finding biblical scholars who support Christian apologetic arguments doesn't tell you much, because it's like finding a Muslim scholar who thinks Muhammad couldn't have written the Quran without divine aid. Furthermore, there are in fact plenty of Christian scholars who would not be supportive of these arguments. Certainly the historical reliability of the New Testament isn't taken for granted in biblical scholarship, contrary to what many lay Christians assume. Possibly the most respected scholar who's tried to make a historical case for the resurrection is Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright, and his argument boils down to claiming Jesus must have risen from the dead because people wouldn't have been able to come up with the idea otherwise. That's another example of an argument Christians would laugh at if it were used to argue for any other religion. It's like arguing if you can't figure out where L. Ron Hubbard got his crazy ideas, Scientology must be true. If anything... I'd actually say that the Mormon church has better evidence for its claims that an angel came down from heaven to verify Joseph Smith's claims. I won't go into detail because if anyone is listening to this and is curious, they can just Google Mormon witnesses. The point is, though, 
Given that most Christians don't believe those claims made by the Mormon Church, and they shouldn't, they shouldn't be claiming the Bible is good evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. So again, to summarize, rationality is about basing beliefs on evidence and being able to change your mind based on new evidence for the sake of making it more likely that your beliefs will be true. However, few religious believers are willing to honestly confront the most serious objections to their beliefs, such as the problem of evil. Furthermore, the most commonly given arguments for the existence of God aren't just flawed. They use reasoning that could just as easily be used to quote-unquote prove claims that everybody rejects, or on supposed evidence for a particular religion that no one would accept as evidence for a religion other than their own. They are not, in other words, arguments that would be of any use to someone trying to figure out what's actually true. If Randall doubts that, I challenge him to pick one or more arguments for the existence of God and defend them as actually having a good chance of persuading a reasonable person. Having said all this, I want to add one caveat that Randall may or may not think is much of a caveat, but I'm going to include it anyway. Within some segments of the Christian community, including much of the evangelical community, there's a massive amount of misinformation floating around about evolution, biblical scholarship, and a number of other subjects. I do have some sympathy for Christians who've fallen for this misinformation. I have to point out, though, that the market for creationist literature apologetics, and so on, is more or less exclusively composed of religious believers looking to have their pre-existing beliefs reinforced. They call it strengthening their faith, dealing with doubt, and so on, but it's fundamentally irrational behavior. That's because, as I said before, when you initially believe something for not smart reasons, odds are it won't be true. And if the belief you adopted for not-smart reasons isn't true, no amount of seeking out people to tell you there are smart reasons to believe what you believe is going to make your beliefs true. The only way to go from having false beliefs to having true ones is to change your mind. When you pick out what to read or listen to with the goal of reinforcing whatever you already believe, frankly, you're asking to be lied to. And on that note, I think I'm going to turn things over to Randall. I'd like to start by thanking Chris Hulquist for his invitation to debate and Justin Schieber in Reasonable Doubts for hosting the debate. The issue of debate is the following question. Is belief in God irrational? Note that this is not the same thing as arguing about whether it is true that God exists, for a true belief may be irrational and a rational belief may be false. But if the rationality of one's belief does not secure the truth of that belief, it is at least a generally reliable guide or indicator as we seek out that which is true, hence the importance of this debate. Chris is arguing that belief in God is irrational. Well, I am arguing that it ain't necessarily so. However, the question as it has been presented to us is problematic and requires significant fine-tuning. I shall return to that point momentarily. 
But first, let's be clear on what we mean by God. Chris defines God as, quote, an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good being, unquote. I agree with this definition. Thus, the question of this debate is whether it is rational to believe that God, so defined, exists. It is important that we keep the precise parameters of debate clear. Unfortunately, in his opening statement, Chris confuses a couple issues. To begin with, in his opening remarks, he conflates belief in God with religion. The problem here is that believing in God is quite different from being religious. For example, Hindu pantheists, Buddhist atheists, and traditional animists all deny the existence of God as defined here, and yet each is surely religious. Moreover, one may believe in God as defined and be non-religious. Consider, for example, a philosophical deist. So the issue is belief in God, not religion. Second, near the end of his opening statement, Chris begins to critique specifically Christian claims. But the rational belief of specifically Christian doctrine is beyond the purview of this debate. Our debate question concerns neither religion nor Christianity. It only concerns the rationality of belief in God simplicator. Now that we have that clear, we can return to the question we are debating. As I said, there is a problem with the question, is belief in God irrational? The problem is that the rationality of a belief can only be assessed in a particular context. Consider, for example, the proposition, the earth is flat. Is belief that the earth is flat rational? Well, that depends on who is believing it, their life experiences and background beliefs, and the occasion upon which they formed and maintained that belief. Many people have rationally believed that the earth is flat. Think, for example, of a medieval peasant. And some still rationally believe the earth is flat, such as an indigenous hunter living in the rainforests of Borneo, or a five-year-old boy living in Seattle. However, it is most doubtful that such a belief could be rational for many other people, such as an airline pilot. Consequently, any person who asserts that it is always irrational to believe in the existence of an entity that is not obviously contradictory adopts an extraordinarily strong burden of proof. It is not clear whether Chris really is shouldering that burden of proof or whether, instead, he is restricting his thesis to a particular subset of theists. If he is restricting his thesis, then he needs to specify the group for which he is claiming it is always irrational to believe in God. Needless to say, I am not defending the absurdly strong assertion that belief in God is always rational for all people everywhere. My claim, rather, is simply that at least some people are rational to believe in God, or at least we have a good reason to believe it so. Consider that millions of people believe in God, and they are not simply from among the most uneducated classes. Many of the world's leading scientists, philosophers, Nobel laureates, and head of states are committed theists. Given this fact, the onus is on Chris to demonstrate that all these millions of theists, many who seem to be the very paradigms of rationality, are not only wrong in their theism, but positively irrational. Now that I've clarified the boundaries of the debate, we can turn to Chris's case. Here we begin with his definition of rational belief. Chris observes that while philosophers agree on the definition of God, they don't all agree on the definition of rational belief. As he puts it, quote, 
What we mean by rational or irrational isn't as widely agreed on, but I take it that when we talk about rationality, we're talking about basing beliefs on evidence and being able to change your mind based on new evidence, unquote. Now let's stop right here. Chris bases his entire argument for the irrationality of belief in God on a definition of rational belief. Note that by his own admission, this definition is not widely agreed on. But if one can rationally disagree with Chris's definition of rational belief, then his entire argument collapses. To sum up, if Chris is going to demonstrate that it is not rational to believe in God, and that argument depends on a particular definition of rational belief, then Chris must first demonstrate that it is not rational to disagree with his definition of rational belief. But things are even worse for Chris. Not only does his definition of rational belief fail to secure universal rational assent, but it is in fact nearly universally rejected by epistemologists. Let's consider why. Chris claims that rationality consists of, quote, basing beliefs on evidence, unquote. In other words, Chris takes the position that to believe P rationally, one must have evidence for P. That's what it is to base a belief on evidence. But Chris simply stipulates this definition with no evidence. Ironically, then, if we accept the definition, then we must reject it, since it has been offered without evidence. Worse yet, Chris's definition of rational belief terminates in global skepticism. Here's why. Chris's definition requires that for one to believe P rationally, one must have evidence for P. We can call that evidence P1. But then, if he is to believe P1 rationally, he must have additional evidence, which we can call P2. But then, if he is to believe P2 rationally, he must have additional evidence, which we can call P3. I trust you can see where this is going. Chris's definition of rational belief terminates in an infinite regress of rational justification. Since no human agent can maintain an infinite set of beliefs, it follows from Chris's definition that nobody can be rational to believe anything at all, including Chris's definition. Given that Chris's definition of rational belief is self-defeating, how ought we to define rational belief? Well, we can define rational belief negatively and positively. Negatively, we can define a rational belief as a belief the holding of which violates no epistemic duties. If Chris wants to claim that all theists, or a defined subset of theists, violate some particular epistemic duty, perhaps he can explain what that duty is in his rebuttal. Positively, a rational belief is any belief that is either properly non-basic or properly basic. A properly non-basic belief is a belief that is held appropriately in light of supporting evidence. A properly basic belief is a belief that is held appropriately but which does not require evidence. Epistemologists recognize that there must be properly basic beliefs, i.e. those that do not require evidence, because uh, precisely so that we can escape the vicious infinite regress of justification that plagues Chris's definition of rational belief. There is widespread disagreement, and I should add rational disagreement, among philosophers on just which types of belief can be a source of properly basic belief. But let's consider one example for sake of illustration. Memorial beliefs. 
Let's say, for example, that Jones believes I ate cornflakes for breakfast. Most contemporary epistemologists take the view that a belief of this type can be properly basic. That is, so long as Jones is not aware of any reason to distrust the deliverances of his memory, he can rationally believe that he ate cornflakes for breakfast without seeking additional evidence, such as an independent analysis of the contents of his stomach or a surveillance video documenting the event. Epistemologists disagree about whether belief in God can be properly basic. However, it is worth noting that many of the most important contemporary epistemologists, including Alvin Plantinga, Nicholas Wolterstorff, Michael Bergman, and the late William Alston, all believe that it can. Chris has not even attempted to dispute this position. As for properly non-basic beliefs, these are rational beliefs that are held on the basis of the evidence of other beliefs. Whether or not belief in God can be properly basic it is certainly possible that folks might have evidence that would secure it as properly non-basic. So on what basis can Chris claim otherwise? We assess whether a belief is properly non-basic by considering all the evidence in support of the belief and all the evidence against the belief. The arguments for and against God's existence is vast, and far beyond the constrained boundaries of a 20-minute opening statement. So one wonders how Chris could possibly think he could address all the arguments for and against God's existence with sufficient comprehensiveness and understanding so as to secure his conclusion that belief in God cannot be properly non-basic for any theist. Chris briefly mentions a few arguments for God's existence, including the argument from design, the ontological argument, and the moral argument. However, all his comments are far too brief and underdeveloped to constitute a serious defeater to any of these developed arguments. Since Chris uh, uh, directs some critical comments on the moral argument that I present in my co-authored book, God or Godless, I'll deal with that directly. In that chapter, I communicate the argument through a brief narrative, chronicling a serial killer entering retirement. The argument goes like this. One, if God doesn't exist, then there is no absolute standard to judge a life well lived. Proposition two, but there is an absolute standard to judge a life well lived. Proposition three, therefore, God exists. Chris seems to take issue with the first premise. However, my opponent, John Loftus, didn't dispute that premise. And in that book, I was debating John Loftus, not Chris Hulquist. Had I been debating an atheist who denied premise one, undoubtedly I would have been more than happy to defend that premise. That's about it for his discussion of arguments for God's existence. Not only are Chris's comments on these arguments so cursory as to be of negligible value, but he never even comments on the entire family of cosmological arguments, arguments from cosmic fine-tuning and biological information, abstract objects and teleology, consciousness and aesthetic value, and on and on. In other words, he hasn't even made the first trifling baby steps to justify his assertion that belief in God can never be properly non-basic. Chris suggests that belief in God is irrational because people tend to believe in God due to processes of socialization. But we also believe things about politics, economics, ethics, natural science, and just about everything else through parallel processes of socialization. If the socialization of belief constitutes a defeater to that belief, 
then we're all consigned to the hinterland of irrationality. But of course, that is absurd. Chris spends most of his time developing and defending two arguments against the existence of God. He begins with the problem of evil. Unfortunately, Chris fails to distinguish the logical problem of evil from the evidential problem of evil. This becomes evident when he claims that, quote, many theistic philosophers have claimed that there is a consensus among professional philosophers that Plandiga has vanquished the argument from evil, unquote. Chris is confused on this point. Nobody claims that Alvin Plandiga addressed the problem of evil simplicator. Rather, Plantinga's free will defense addressed the logical problem of evil, and the consensus is indeed that he was successful in showing that there is no logical contradiction between the existence of God and the existence of evil. To be sure, this still leaves the evidential problem of evil, and this brings us to a lively area of ongoing debate among leading philosophers of religion, with folks lining up on each side. Uh, keep in mind that a philosoph some philosophers of religion are agnostic, some are atheists, they're not all theists. However, when a live debate of this sort exists among professional philosophers, it is extraordinarily presumptuous to declare all the participants on one side not only to be incorrect, but positively irrational. And yet, this is what Chris proposes to do. Given that Chris commits the elementary blunder of conflating logical and evidential problems of evil, his assessment of the rationality of senior philosophers of religion is hardly a credible witness. Chris's second putative defeater for the rationality of belief in God is, if anything, even more underwhelming. According to Stephen Law's Evil God Challenge, if the evil in the world is consistent with God, it is also consistent with what Law calls evil God. Chris concludes, quote, If we can rule out the possibility of an evil God, what's different about the idea of a good God? Unquote. First off, Law's chosen terminology is unfortunate. Remember that at the outset of his opening statement, Chris defined God as a perfectly good being. Consequently, to speak of a good God, i.e. a good, perfectly good being, is redundant. And to speak of an evil God, i.e. an evil, perfectly good being, is contradictory. For the sake of clarity, then, let's maintain the proper use of the word God to refer to a perfectly good being. And instead of evil God, let's just use the term super evil being. With that in mind, we can restate Law's challenge like this. If the world is consistent with both God and super evil being, why believe God exists rather than super evil being? Okay, let's concede that the world as we experience it is consistent with both God and super evil being. So what? Virtually every rational person believes there is a physical world that exists outside of or external to our minds. This is despite the fact that our conscious experience is fully consistent with the possibility that all our minds are in a matrix, or that we are just brains in a vat. But the fact that we could be minds in a matrix, or brains in a vat, doesn't provide us a reason to believe the external world doesn't exist. So why does Chris think the possibility that super evil being could exist provides a reason for any theist to think that God doesn't exist? 
Law's argument seems to be based on the assumption that people observe the balance of good to evil in the world and then conclude that God must therefore exist because of the balance of good and evil. But this is absurd. People don't reason like this. Rather, they begin with belief in God and then observe, rightly, that the distribution of good to evil in the world does not constitute a defeater for that belief. Consequently, Law's whole argument for evil God or super evil being or whatever you want to call it has all the impact of a wet firecracker. Let me sum up. Chris purports to show that belief in God is not rational. But not rational for which people? People who hold which set of beliefs and under which circumstances? Chris doesn't say. But as I said, the very nature of epistemology is you have to specify the context in which a belief is held. He then rests his case on a definition of rational belief that is self-defeating in two ways. First, his definition asserts that all belief requires evidence. And yet Chris himself provides no evidence for this definition. Second, it initiates an infinite regress of justification which leaves all beliefs, including belief in the very definition itself, unjustified and so irrational. Next, I provided two definitions of rational belief. Negatively, I defined it with respect to the observation of epistemic duty, and I noted that Chris provides no reason, no evidence, to think that belief in God always violates epistemic duty. Positively, I pointed out that rational belief can be properly basic or properly non-basic, and I noted that Chris provides no evidence that theistic belief cannot be properly basic. As for proper non-basicality, such belief is based on evidence, and I noted Chris hasn't even begun to consider all the evidence for and against belief in God that would warrant the conclusion that non-basic belief in God is always irrational. Next, I pointed out that Chris conflates the logical and evidential problems of evil. Contrary to Chris, the logical problem of evil is widely considered to have been answered by Alvin Plantinga. As for the evidential problem, this remains an area of vigorous debate, but that fact in no wise suggests that all theistic participants in that debate are irrational. As for Law's super-evil being challenge, I pointed out that the possibility that we are minds in a matrix or brains in a vat is no reason to reject the view that the world external to our minds exists. By the same token, the fact that super-evil being could exist provides no reason to think that God doesn't. In his opening statement, Chris declared, quote, If you want to be rational, if you really care about the truth, you have to be willing to confront your belief's real weak points, unquote. I pointed out the many weak points in Chris's beliefs. Now let's see if he can live up to his own standard. I'm going to start by addressing an issue that came up at two different key points in Randall's opening statement, and that's Randall's claiming that on those points there is a philosophical consensus supporting his side of the issue. Now, if there's one bit of knowledge I can impart to non-philosophers based on my study of philosophy, it's this. You should always be very skeptical of claims of consensus in philosophy. To quote philosopher Peter Van Inwagen, philosophers do not agree about anything to speak of. 
I want to state up front that I don't have survey data on either of the two issues Randall claims a consensus on, but then neither does Randall. And I wonder what Randall thinks we would find if we did have survey data. When he answers that question, he should remember that according to the philpapers.org survey, atheist philosophers outnumber theist philosophers by not nearly five to one. On the specific issue of the problem of evil, Randall says there is not a consensus on the problem of evil in general, but there is a consensus on the logical problem of evil specifically, and accuses me of being confused about the issue. However, the fact is that some of Randall's colleagues have not been as cautious with their claims as he would like us to believe. Furthermore, even Randall's weaker claim is untrue. The quote from David Lewis in my opening statement demonstrates that. If needed, I could cite more examples. For example, J.L. Mackey, concluding his reply to Planninga in The Miracle of Theism, writes that quote, In short, all forms of the free will defense fail, and since this defense alone had any chance of success, there is no plausible theodicy on offer. Massimo Pigliucci is another example just off the top of my head. Uh, Randall also claims that my definition of rational belief is, quote, universally rejected by epistemologists, and then goes on to tell us what, quote, epistemologists recognize and so on. What he doesn't tell us is that by epistemologists, he's really mostly talking about Alvin Plantinga and his followers. And Plantinga does not speak for all philosophers on these issues any more than he speaks for all philosophers on the problem of evil. Uh, to give just one example, Richard Feldman and Earl Kani have def recently defended a variety of evidentialism. I have to point out that while Randall's claims of consensus are totally baseless, he's hardly the only theistic philosopher to make them. Claims that planning his view on some issue or other is the consensus of philosophy are popular because theistic philosophers desperately want them to be true, but they aren't. This should undercut any presumption of that these philosophers are being reasonable about their belief in God. Now that I've given these false claims of consensus out of the way, I can move on to the actual arguments. I'll start by briefly addressing the issue of arguments for and against the existence of God before moving on to the main issue of this debate. I'm glad Randall agrees with me on defining God as an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good being, because too many currently popular arguments for the existence of God don't bother to argue for all three of those attributes. That, or they tack the properties on in such a way that the argument would work just as well as an argument for a being with different properties. That's half the point of the evil God challenge. Theists might not like admitting it, but I don't think what I've said is actually that controversial. For example, William Lane Craig admits that the design argument and his own Kalam cosmological argument don't establish the moral properties of the creator. Craig tries to argue that they can help establish the existence of God when combined with other arguments, but that strategy only works if those arguments work.
So what arguments are out there that have even a prima facie chance of rising to the evil god challenge? Well, one strategy would be to to argue for an entire package of religious beliefs that includes God, but as I explained in my opening statement, those arguments have their own issues. The next best candidate I can think of, not that it's a great candidate, is the moral argument. Randall claimed in his opening statement that he could defend this argument, but he didn't actually try to do so. If Randall wants us to take seriously the possibility of what he and Planninga would call properly non-basic belief in God, I don't think it's too much to ask that he actually defend one or more relevant arguments. I'm not saying that he has to settle the issue of God's existence in this debate, just make a case that there are credible arguments out there that lack the obvious shortcomings of other popular arguments. Uh, Regarding my two arguments against the existence of God, aside from his incorrect claim of consensus on the logical problem of evil, Randall failed to address my initial simple version of the argument from evil. So uh, though I hate to repeat myself, I'll ask again, does Randall seriously think that an all-powerful, loving God would have allowed that little girl in Michigan to be murdered the way she was? And what reasons can he give for his answer? As for Randall's response to the evil God challenge, Randall claimed that the argument is based on the assumption that theists infer the existence of God by observing the balance of good and evil in the world. Not only is that something I never said in my presentation of the argument, it's something that law has explained is a misunderstanding of the argument. Thus, Randall's criticisms of the evil God challenge fail to connect. This is especially puzzling because he does manage to correctly quote me on the core of the argument. If we can rule out the possibility of an evil god, what's the difference about the idea of a good god? That's the issue he needs to address. To summarize, I think we've seen that there are strong arguments against the existence of God. We've also seen some quite general problems that any arguments for the existence of God would have to overcome. And Randall has given us hardly any hint of how they could be overcome. So what does this mean for the rationality of belief in God? I actually agree with Randall that what's rational for someone to believe depends somewhat on their circumstances. That's why I talked about the issue of misinformation in the Christian community in my opening statement, and I could have made similar points about other religious communities. I'm not in a position to know for certain that there isn't someone out there who has a secret, super-strong argument for the existence of God they haven't told the rest of us about, but the situation for theism doesn't look good, and least when we're talking about the overwhelming majority of adult believers alive today. As for what rationality is, Randall rather bizarrely claimed I need to demonstrate it isn't rational to disagree with my definition of rational belief. I would have thought that all that matters here is the correct definition of rational belief. Unless maybe you think rationality only applies to people who 
can be rationally compelled to accept the correct definition of rationality, but I can't imagine why anyone would think that. That said, in my opening statement, I wasn't trying to give an all-encompassing theory of rationality, just some basic points to guide us in the debate. Randall latched on to the word evidence and interpreted me as saying some things I didn't quite say, but my real point was to emphasize the connection between rationality and truth-seeking. The question is, how are you making sure, as best you can, that your beliefs are true? The reason evidence is important is because having your beliefs guided by evidence is the only way I know of to make it more likely that your beliefs will be true. Here I understand evidence broadly to include rational argument and so on. Some concrete examples may be helpful. In my opening statement, I pointed out that most people's religious beliefs are determined by what people around them believe, but this isn't a very rational approach to deciding what to believe. In response, Randall said that almost everything we believe is due to quote-unquote processes of socialization. I'm not sure what he means by that, but if it just means believing whatever people around you believe, I don't think it's true of people in general. And if it's true of you, I think you're going to wind up in trouble. For example, Randall mentioned politics. Is just believing whatever people around you believe about politics smart? I don't think so. British philosopher Bertrand Russell, writing about how history is taught in different countries, commented that, One of the chief purposes of education in the United States has been to turn the motley collection of immigrant children into good Americans. A good American is a man or woman imbued with the belief that America is the finest country on earth and ought always to be enthusiastically supported in any quarrel. It is just possible that these propositions are true. If so, a rational man will have no quarrel with them. But if they are true, they ought to be taught everywhere, not only in America. Based on my experience growing up in America, I'd say things have probably gotten a little better since Russell wrote that, but only a little. Randall also mentioned science. What about that? Well, believing whatever people around you believe about science might work out okay, but it might not if the people around you believe that the Earth is 6,000 years old or that homeopathy works. If that's the situation you start out in, having accurate beliefs about science is going to require doing some hard work to figure out who you can trust. Doing things like understanding why a carefully designed scientific study deserves more weight than one person's testimony that they took homeopathic remedy and felt better. As for Randall's argument that my view leads to an infinite regress, it assumes that evidence for beliefs can only come in the form of other beliefs, and I don't know why he would assume that. Maybe he has some funny ideas about what the word evidence means. But let's assume, for the sake of argument, that the planting a style framework that Randall uses is correct. Could belief in God be properly basic? Even within Plantinga's framework, there's a strong argument that the answer is no. Plantinga calls the basic objection the Great Pumpkin Objection. He writes, According to the Great Pumpkin Objection, if belief in God can be properly basic, 
then so can any other belief, no matter how bizarre. If belief in God can be properly basic, then all bets are off, and anything goes. You might as well claim that belief in the great pumpkin, who returns every Halloween to the most sincere pumpkin patch, is properly basic with respect to warrant. You might as well make the same claim for atheism, voodoo, astrology, witchcraft, and anything else you can think of. In his book, Warranted Christian Belief, Plantinga ends up arguing, for complicated reasons I won't go into, that Christians can avoid the Great Pumpkin Objection because Christianity has doctrines like the doctrine of sensus divinitatis and the internal instigation of the Holy Spirit. Plantinga recognizes that this means other religions with analogous doctrines could use his defense of the rationality of Christianity, but, he claims, his defense couldn't be used for voodoo or flat-earthism. The problem with this, as Tyler Wonder has pointed out, is that, actually, a voodooist or flat-earther could use planting as defense for their beliefs. A voodooist could claim that voodoo spirits assure him of the truth of his voodoo beliefs, analogously to what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do in Christianity. Or a Christian flat earther could claim the Holy Spirit has led him to interpret the Bible literally in the passages that seem to imply a flat earth. So even if you grant planting a great deal that I wouldn't actually grant him, his argument fails even on its own terms. Again, though I stand by what I've said about rationality in this debate, even on Plantinga's framework, I think we've seen there are strong defeaters for theistic belief, and at least a strong prima facie case that there's no way theistic belief can be properly non-basic. And I don't think Randall has succeeded in seriously challenging either of those points. The topic of this debate is the question, is belief in God irrational? Given that millions of people believe in God, and many of them, including many highly respected philosophers and scientists, appear to be highly rational and to have well-thought-out reasons for believing in God, it is Chris's burden of proof to persuade us that none of those people are rational to believe in God. By contrast, I am defending the modest assertion that at least some of these people are rational to believe in God, including, but not limited to, many of those aforementioned philosophers and scientists. I began by pointing out that Chris has confused our topic of debate with both religion and Christianity. He seems to have conceded that point. Chris also accepts my caveat about the contextual nature of rational belief, but this concession should not be overlooked because it places a significant burden of proof on Chris to provide reason to believe that belief in God is always irrational, whatever the context. Next, we turn to Chris's understanding of rationality. As I observed, Chris states that, quote, when we talk about rationality, we're talking about basing beliefs on evidence, unquote. I took this to mean that, according to Chris, to believe P rationally, one must have evidence for P. I then pointed out that this view of rationality is self-defeating and entails global skepticism. Chris initially responded in a couple ways. 
To begin with, he asserted that my critique is only representative of the epistemology of, quote, Alvin Plantinga and his followers, unquote. But that's false. My critique doesn't depend on Plantinga. It consists only of a conceptual analysis of Chris's definition on its own terms. Chris's second response was to point out that two philosophers, Connie and Feldman, have each recently defended a form of evidentialism. But that's a complete non-sequitur, since those philosophers aren't defending Chris's definition of rational belief. Later in his rebuttal, Chris offers a third response by suggesting that it was never his intention to offer a formal definition of rationality, as he said, quote, I wasn't trying to give an all-encompassing theory of rationality. I'm not sure what Chris means by an all-encompassing theory. I'd simply like him to define rational belief in a way that doesn't entail self-defeat or global skepticism. If Chris can't even explain what a rational belief is, what is his basis for condemning theistic belief as irrational? While Chris is at a loss to define what he means by rational belief, he has claimed that whatever rational belief may be, it is closely tied to evidence. This makes it all the more ironic that Chris has a penchant for making bald assertions without any evidence. For example, he asserts the following, quote, Claims that Plantinga's view on some issue or other is the consensus of philosophy are popular because theistic philosophers desperately want them to be true, unquote. And where is the evidence for this surprisingly bold psychological analysis of theistic philosophers? Chris provides no evidence. Even worse, Chris also makes claims that flatly contradict the evidence. For example, he insists there is no consensus on whether Plantica answered the logical problem of evil. His evidence? Chris cites the opinion of J.L. Mackey, an atheistic philosopher of religion who passed away in 1981 and was well known for his defense of the logical problem of evil. To cite this as evidence that no consensus currently exists on the logical problem of evil is rather like citing a global warming skeptic from 30 years ago as evidence that there is no current consensus on global warming. The fact is that such a consensus does exist as anybody well-read in the problem of evil literature would know. For example, in 1985, Robert Adams, a leading philosopher of religion, observed, quote, I think it is fair to say that Plantinga has solved this problem. That is, he has argued convincingly for the consistency of 1. God is omniscient, omnipotent, and wholly good, and 2. There is evil in the world. In his 2007 book, Defending William Rowe's Evidential Problem of Evil, Nick Trakakis observes that Adam's comment is, quote, typical of the current assessment on the logical problem of evil, unquote. Several other philosophers have likewise taken note of this broad consensus in their published writings, including Chad Meister, John Feinberg, Alan Paget, and Steve Wilkins. Indeed, before he died, even J.L. Mackey himself conceded that Plantinga's free will defense had succeeded. On page 154 of The Miracle of Theism, he admits that Plantica's defense is, quote, formally, i.e., logically, possible. 
and its principle involves no real abandonment of our ordinary view of the opposition between good and evil, we can concede that the problem of evil does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another, unquote. So Chris is completely wrong. There is a well-established consensus that Planica has refuted the logical problem of evil, even from J.L. Mackey himself. One must marvel at the irony of Chris having the audacity to make such a flat denial contrary to all the available evidence, and to do so while challenging the rationality of others. In recent years, the problem of evil has centered on questions like the following. Does the distribution, intensity, and duration of evil provide evidence that God doesn't exist? Should finite human subjects expect to have epistemic access to the kinds of reasons God might have for allowing evil? And finally, does the existence of God provide the best explanation for the existence of objective moral value and obligation? If so, then evil might, ironically, provide evidence for God's existence rather than against it. As these questions suggest, the problem of evil is an ongoing and lively field of philosophical discourse, and to suggest that all theistic contributors to the discussion are irrational is the worst kind of triumphalism. Chris ignores this vast literature and instead just asks me to explain why God allows a particular child to suffer. This may be a good way to score some cheap emotional points, but it is quite irresponsible for anybody who purports to be serious about the diverse and technical philosophical discussion of these matters. As for the poorly named evil God argument, I pointed out that everybody excludes certain logical possibilities as live options of belief. Philosophers have recognized this fact since the days of Descartes' evil demon, which has stubbornly resisted all attempted exorcisms. Alas, Chris completely ignored my response along these lines. So let me restate it. Quote, The fact that we could be minds in a matrix or brains in a vat doesn't provide us a reason to believe the external world doesn't exist. So why does Chris think the possibility that super-evil being could exist provides a reason for any theist to think God doesn't exist? Unquote. So much for Chris's defeaters for theism. Now let's consider directly Chris's position that theistic belief cannot be properly basic or properly non-basic for any person. Let's consider first proper basicality. In reaction to the suggestion that belief in God might be properly basic, Chris cites the Great Pumpkin Objection, made famous by Alvin Plantinga, as well as Tyler Wonder's objections to Plantinga's view of proper basicality. In a series of articles in my blog, I offer rebuttals to both Tyler Wonder and another philosopher, James Sennett, for their critiques of Plantinga's view. But we need not get into that discussion to refute Chris's position. Instead, all we need to do is observe that theistic belief could be properly basic as a deliverance of testimonial belief. That is, a person could come to have a rational belief that God exists simply based on the testimony of another person. 
In order to appreciate the importance of this point, we first need to understand that testimony is a source of properly basic belief. For example, imagine that Jones calls his wife to ask how the weather is at their house. It is raining now, she replies. Based on the testimony of his wife, Jones can come to believe rationally that it is raining at his house. He doesn't need to seek any further supporting evidence to believe this claim rationally. Thus, testimony provides a source of properly basic belief. So Chris needs to demonstrate that no person could come to believe God exists in a properly basic way upon hearing testimony to God's existence from a credible witness. Of course, he hasn't done this. What about properly non-basic belief? As I noted in my opening statement, there are dozens of arguments for God's existence which have logically valid structure and plausible premises. Chris suggests I ought to defend one or more relevant arguments. But I have done this. In my books and blog, I've defended a cosmological argument from sufficient reason, a design argument, an argument from reasoning ability, a prudential argument, an ontological argument, an argument from teleology, an argument from specified events, a moral argument, and more. In my first response to Chris, I summarized my moral argument from God or Godless in three steps. Premise 1. If God doesn't exist, then there is no absolute standard to judge a life well lived. Premise 2. But there is an absolute standard to judge a life well lived. Conclusion. Therefore, God exists. The form of that argument conforms to modus tollens and thus is logically valid. Moreover, the argument has plausible premises. In other words, it has premises which are recognized as plausible by many highly intelligent and apparently rational people. Thus the onus is on Chris to demonstrate that a person could not rationally believe God exists based on this or any other of these arguments. He doesn't even attempt to do this. Many of the leading scientists and philosophers of the last several decades have been committed theists, including famous philosophers like Michael Dummett, Alistair McIntyre, Hilary Putnam, Roderick Chisholm, Richard Taylor, Elizabeth Anscombe, Peter Vanenwagen, Peter Geech, John Lucas, William Alston, and so on. The list of scientists is equally formidable and includes Nobel Prize winning neurophysiologist John Eccles, physicist Frank Tipler, geneticist and former head of the Human Genome Project Francis Collins, and physicist Don Page, who I recently interviewed in my podcast. Each of these individuals has thought long and hard about the evidential support for their theistic beliefs and they are recognized authorities in their professions. What basis has Chris given us to believe that none of these individuals have evidential grounds sufficient to render their theistic belief properly non-basic? All he's given is a passing critique of a couple theistic arguments, as well as his question of why God would allow a child to suffer and his abortive evil God argument. While Chris has not provided adequate evidence to doubt the rationality of theists the world over, he has raised some troubling questions 
about his own rationality, at least within the confines of this debate. As we have seen, not only has Chris failed to provide evidence for many of his own suppositions, but at times he has even made statements that are flatly contradicted by the available evidence. And by doubting the rationality of world-renowned theistic philosophers and scientists who have thought long and hard about their own beliefs, Chris shows himself to be lacking in that very important doxastic virtue we call epistemic humility. Perhaps before he opines on the rationality of many of the world's leading theistic intellectuals, Chris should focus first on getting his own rational house in order. First of all, I don't concede that I've confused God, religion, and Christianity. Obviously, I'm aware that there are Buddhists who don't believe in God. As for whether a philosophical deist would count as being religious, it's a semantic issue which I don't think is relevant to anything I've said in this debate. Finally, I've talked about Christianity only for the sake of making points about certain kinds of strategies for defending belief in God, explaining why they don't work. Uh, regarding what rationality is, Randall is correct that Connie and Feldman frame their variety of evidentialism not as a view about rationality, but as a view about justification. They think a person's beliefs are justified if and only if that person's evidence supports their belief. However, this view is subject to the same kind of self-defeat objections Randall has advanced, and Connie and Feldman obviously don't think those objections work, showing Randall is wrong to claim a consensus. Furthermore, in my rebuttal, I didn't just cite Connie and Feldman. I also explained why my view is not self-defeating, something Randall has ignored. Similarly, I noted that many theistic philosophers claim a consensus on the problem of evil, but the evidence shows that they are simply wrong. So in his rebuttal, what does Randall do? He lists the theistic philosophers who claim a consensus on the problem of evil. But I never denied that they say that. I'm saying they're wrong. Randall's response is like if a scientist pointed out that while many creationists claim scientists are abandoning quote-unquote Darwinism, the facts show the creationists are wrong, and then a creationist responded by listing the creationists who say scientists are abandoning Darwinism. But what makes me angry here is Randall's claim that J.L. Mackey conceded that Plantinga's argument was a success. The quote from Mackey that Randall provides says nothing about Plantinga or the free will defense. And in context, it's referring to a different issue, an issue that Mackey also acknowledged in his paper Evil and Omnipotence, which he wrote in 1955, before planning his work on the problem of evil. Read side by side, Mackey's position in The Miracle of Theism is hardly any different from his position in Evil and Omnipotence, and there's no reason to attribute any shifts to planning it. As I showed in my first rebuttal, in The Miracle of Theism, Mackey continued to regard the free will defense as a failure. I have to wonder if when Randall talks about the logical problem of evil, he has in mind some argument that Mackey never defended, not even back in 1955. Unfortunately, Mackey died shortly before The Miracle of Theism was published, and many theistic philosophers proceeded to misrepresent what he said in that book in exactly the same way Randall did in his rebuttal. 
Since Mackey was dead, he couldn't defend himself against this misrepresentation. What this tells me is that Randall hasn't made enough of an effort to find out for himself what atheist philosophers like Mackey have said about these issues, instead relying on what his fellow theistic philosophers say about them. This is every bit as foolish as relying on creationists to tell you about the views of evolutionary biologists. Randall also complains that Mackey is 30 years out of date, while ignoring the fact that other atheists have said similar things more recently. In addition to the philosophers I've already mentioned, Richard M. Gale, Quentin Smith, and Howard Sobel have all defended logical arguments from evil. Even Graham Oppie, who doesn't claim the problem of evil is decisive, still argues in his book Arguing About Gods that planning his free will defense is unsuccessful. Oppie also specifically questions the claims of consensus that Randall's side has been making. I could cite even more examples than that, but I'll limit myself to quoting something theistic philosopher Robert Gressis said just three years ago. Most atheist philosophers are atheists but have never read Planning at all on philosophy of religion. Or at least, they have read very little. I say this because of how often I've met atheist philosophers who think Mackey successfully disproved theism in his 1955 article, Evil and Omnipotence. That's the quote. Now the irony here is rich. Gressis realizes that many atheist philosophers think Mackey successfully disproved theism, but dismisses them because he thinks this must mean they haven't read Planninga. But the assumption that everyone who reads Planninga finds his arguments convincing is demonstrably false, as shown by the examples of Mackey and Lewis. This is really another example of the irrationality of theistic philosophers. By the way, the idea of a strong presumption of rationality on the part of prominent intellectuals was silly in the first place, at least on issues where there's no consensus or which fall outside their expertise. For crying out loud, Newton was a strong believer in alchemy. Some historians even think he considered his work on alchemy and occultism more important than the scientific work we remember him for. Before I move on from this issue of alleged consensus, there's one question I'd really like an answer to. What percentage of experts does Randall think you need for it to count as a consensus? I've belabored this issue of consensus because Randall's mistake is depressingly common, and I'm hoping I can do a public service by stamping it out. But even if Randall were right about Mackey's argument, he would still need to respond to the separate arguments I've been defending in this debate, and he's barely done so. His only response to my simple version of the argument from evil was to dismiss it as trying to, quote, score some cheap emotional points. But that's no more true of that argument than any philosophical argument based on our moral judgments about a particular case, such as the trolley problem. Regarding the evil God challenge, Randall claims I ignored his response when in fact I pointed out that his objection was based on a misunderstanding of the argument a misunderstanding which Randall has failed to acknowledge or correct. Again, the point is not that a super-evil being could exist, but that we have good reasons to think one doesn't, and once you accept that, it becomes very difficult to avoid the conclusion that we have parallel reasons for thinking a super-good being doesn't exist either. 
regarding arguments for the existence of God, I've presented a prima facie case that no currently popular argument for the existence of God has much hope of succeeding, because, among other things, few such arguments even try to address the moral character of the Creator. The truth is that philosophers have largely given up on arguments for the existence of God. Less than 15% of philosophers are theists. Of the theists, many have little interest in arguing for the existence of God, preferring to defend a belief by faith. And the ones who do talk about defending arguments for the existence of God tend to be defending arguments for a weaker conclusion than there is an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good being. The only new point in Randall's rebuttal here is the claim that many arguments for the existence of God have plausible premises, but that's setting the bar far too low. Normally, philosophers care about whether an argument's premises are actually true and whether we can see that they're true. What does plausible even mean here? That we can believe the assumptions if we want to? As I've already explained, arguing, I can believe this if I want to, isn't what we should be talking about when we talk about rationality. Finally, are the premises any more plausible than the premises I could use to quote-unquote prove that an evil god exists, or that pigs fly? The last major issue in this debate is whether it could be rational to believe in God without evidence. Randall argues that you can because of testimony, which is strange because testimony is a kind of evidence. Even so, testimony of what? Miracles? Even religious people don't believe such testimony when it's another religion's miracles. Or is it testimony of religious experiences? But we know religious experiences aren't a reliable guide to truth because of all the conflicting belief systems that claim religious experiences as support. That includes, by the way, some non-theistic belief systems. Go read, for example... Richard Carrier's description of the experiences he had as a Taoist. Or, to quote Eliezer Yudkowsky, I know a transhumanist who has strong religious visions, which she once attributed to future minds reaching back in time and talking to her. But then she reasoned it out, asking why future superminds would grant only her the solace of conversation and why they could offer vaguely reassuring arguments, but not tell her winning lottery numbers or the 900th digit of pi. So now she still has strong religious experiences, but she is not religious. Theists, if they would be rational, would do well to apply similar reasoning to their own beliefs. The issue of debate is not whether belief in God can be irrational. Indeed, almost any belief can be irrational under the right circumstances. Instead, the debate centers on whether belief in God is always irrational. Chris claims that it is, and in choosing to defend that bold thesis, he shoulders an enormous burden of proof, for he must establish that the millions of theists in the world, including many of the world's leading academics, are all irrational. If Chris is to have any hope of defending this thesis, he must first articulate what concept of rational belief he is assuming. As I have pointed out, Chris failed to accomplish even this modest task, for the definition of rational belief that he initially provided was self-defeating and terminates in skepticism. In his rebuttal, Chris offered three responses, yet none dealt with my argument. 
First, he claimed my analysis of his views was derivative of Alvin Plantinga. I pointed out that this was false, not to mention irrelevant. Second, he pointed out that two philosophers, Connie and Feldman, defend a form of evidentialism. I pointed out that this was a non-sequitur. Third, he stated he wasn't trying to defend a definition of rationality. In response, I reiterated that he needs to provide a definition if he wants to argue that theism is irrational. In his latest response, Chris returns to the evidentialists, Connie and Feldman, and asserts that 1. My critique would apply to Connie and Feldman, and 2. Connie and Feldman do not seem troubled by this type of objection. Chris then surmises that my objection to his definition of rational belief must not be good, otherwise Connie and Feldman would have addressed it. Note that Chris does everything but what he should be doing, namely responding directly to my critique by demonstrating that his definition of rational belief isn't self-defeating and doesn't terminate in skepticism. Moreover, in his latest response, Chris hasn't demonstrated that Connie and Feldman's internalist evidentialism is vulnerable to the same problems as his definition of rational belief. He just asserts it. Finally, if Connie and Feldman's evidentialism is subject to the same problem, then the rational conclusion is that we have a defeater for their form of evidentialism. Admittedly, this is somewhat of a sidebar issue, because after I presented my initial critique of his definition of rational belief, Chris quickly adopted the definition I provided, namely a belief that is properly basic or properly non-basic. So has he provided grounds to conclude that belief in God cannot be properly basic or non-basic? I provided one plausible way that theistic belief could be properly basic, and that is by way of testimony. Chris's response is twofold. First, he retorts that evidence, uh, testimony is a kind of evidence. Chris is correct, sort of. Testimony can indeed be a kind of evidence. But what he fails to understand is that it is also recognized by epistemologists to be a source of properly basic belief. I gave the illustration of Jones rationally coming to believe that his, it is raining at his house based solely on his wife's testimony. Once his wife tells him it is raining at his house, he doesn't require further evidence to believe rationally that it is raining at his house. This is not a contested point among epistemologists. If Chris still thinks testimony cannot be properly basic, I'd suggest he read Chapter 7 of Robert Audi's fine book, Epistemology, A Contemporary Introduction. So what is Chris's basis to believe that no person could have a properly basic belief that God exists through the testimony of another person? In his rebuttal, Chris's only response was to point out that people have different religious experiences. Apparently, he is thinking that somehow, contrary religious experience provides a defeater for testimony. This response is flawed on two points. To begin with, it assumes without argument that if people have different experiences from you, that provides a defeater for your experience. But that doesn't follow. A wine taster may detect flavors in a glass of wine inaccessible to the average person. Needless to say, the average person's failure to detect those flavors does not provide a defeater to the wine taster's experience. Likewise, a theist may have good reasons to explain why people, other people don't have the experience of God that he does. Ultimately, however, this too is a sidebar issue because Chris's argument is yet another non-sequitur, since I never claimed that testimony must rest ultimately in the religious experience of the one testifying. So Chris has failed to offer any argument at all that people cannot rationally believe that God exists as a result of a properly basic doxastic process like testimony. What about properly non-basic belief? Here Chris has a twofold task. 
First, he must show that there are no good arguments to believe God exists. And, second, he must provide good arguments to believe God doesn't exist. Does he succeed? And the short answer is no. Let's consider first the arguments that God does exist. As I noted, there are dozens upon dozens of arguments for God's existence, many of them defended by philosophers and scientists far more capable than either Chris or myself. I noted that in my own published writings, I've defended at least eight distinct arguments for God's existence. Apart from a cursory interaction with a couple of these arguments, Chris does not even engage them, let alone refute them. In his most recent rebuttal, he does attempt some sort of response, for he asserts, quote, No currently popular argument for the existence of God has much hope of succeeding because, among other things, few such arguments even try to address the moral character of the Creator, unquote. At this point, Chris seems to be assuming that for an argument for God's existence to succeed, it must address the moral character of God. Of course, some arguments do this, the moral and ontological arguments, for example. But it is bizarre and arbitrary to demand that all theistic arguments must establish the divine moral nature to be worthwhile. This is tantamount to demanding that the only worthwhile evidence in a murder investigation is that which establishes the hair color of the perpetrator. In a murder investigation, multiple independent lines of evidence can converge to establish the identity of the perpetrator. Likewise, as Basil Mitchell outlined in his classic book, The Justification of Religious Belief, in cumulative case arguments for God's existence, multiple independent lines of evidence can provide mutually reinforcing arguments for God's existence. Chris offers a second objection by saying that my description of a good argument as being one which has a valid logical structure and plausible premises sets the bar far too low. But this is erroneous. The minimal baseline for rational argument is indeed logically valid structure with plausible premises. How ironic that Chris suggests I've set the bar too low when he has thus far failed to meet even this modest standard in defense of the claim that theism is always irrational. So Chris does not even attempt to address the dozens upon dozens of arguments for God's existence, and his attempt to dismiss these arguments for failing to address the moral nature of the deity is spurious. What about Chris's putative defeaters for belief in God? As we have seen, Chris offers two, the super, uh, the problem of evil and the super-evil-being argument. As I've noted, Chris shows no awareness at all of the current discussion on the problem of evil, such as the appeal to chaotic systems to explain natural evil, the relationship between soul-making and moral history, the extensive discussion of skeptical theism and cognitive human limitations, or Eleanor Stump's fascinating appeal to narrative in her monumental 600-page Oxford University Press monograph, Wandering in the Darkness, a Narrative, and the Problem of Suffering. Chris ignores all this and simply asks the question why God would allow a particular child to suffer, This is unconscionable ignorance, which bleeds irony, given that Chris has the hubris to accuse those of whose work he is clearly ignorant that they are the irrational ones. When it comes to the status of the logical problem of evil in contemporary philosophy of religion, Chris dismisses all the testimony I provided from leading philosophers of religion because these individuals are theists. In other words, Chris apparently just listens to those who agree with him. This is a staggering exercise of confirmation bias. As for J.L. Mackey's views, I would simply recommend listeners pick up a copy of The Miracle of Theism and read the entire uh, section 
to draw their own conclusions. As for the super evil being argument, it is Chris who is confused. The world of experience is consistent with both God and super evil being, but as I already explained, that fact doesn't provide a defeater for a theist to believe God exists. Once again, I note the irony. With Chris complaining that logically valid structure and plausible premises is too low a bar for a good argument, and yet here again he has failed to provide even that minimal standard in his articulation of the super evil being argument. So, Chris fails to provide arguments against God's existence as surely as he fails to address the arguments for God's existence, and thus he has failed to provide any reason to think belief in God cannot be properly non-basic. I ended my last rebuttal with a challenge for Chris to consider his own rationality. In his most recent rebuttal, he has continued to invoke non-sequiturs, to render opinions on fields of discourse of which he apparently has no familiarity, to exercise egregious confirmation bias, and to fail to articulate logically valid arguments with plausible premises. And all this in an attempt to impugn the rationality of others. As the saying goes, physician, heal thyself. In my opening statement, I argued that rationality is about basing beliefs on evidence and being able to change your mind based on new evidence for the sake of making it more likely your beliefs will be true. Then I presented two simple, straightforward arguments that theism, belief in God, is not true. Finally, I argued that none of the arguments for the existence of God currently popular among theistic philosophers have much chance of succeeding. I cited data from a survey conducted by philpapers.org showing that nearly three-quarters of philosophers are atheists, while less than 15% are theists. Throughout this debate, Randall has claimed that on key points there's a philosophical consensus on his side, but he's presented no comparable survey data to back this claim up. I asked him how he defines consensus, and he ignored the question. That's significant because the truth is on any definition of consensus where it would be even remotely plausible that Randall's claim of consensus is true, it would also be true that there's a philosophical consensus that there is no God. In my opening statement, I challenged Randall on whether he really believes an all-powerful loving God would allow a five-year-old girl to be brutally murdered, and if so, why? I pointed out that in my experience, it's almost impossible to get theists to confront questions like that honestly. Randall has fit the pattern perfectly. His response to my challenge has consisted almost entirely of two things. First, he's called me ignorant. This isn't true. I actually know the literature on the problem of evil quite well. I haven't made a big production of showing off my knowledge because I don't think that behaving that way is helpful in a debate like this. It's better to focus on the arguments. Second, Randall claimed he's got a consensus on his side. I've demonstrated that isn't true. Randall complains I ignore the people he cites on his side while just listing the names of people who agree with me, but that complaint makes no sense because Randall's claim is that there's a consensus. A consensus means people agree. If some people claim a consensus, but other people don't agree, guess what? That means there's no consensus. Randall's responses on other key issues in this debate have been even weaker. He still hasn't corrected his misrepresentation of Stephen Law's evil God challenge. In this last round, he asserted without any argument that actually an evil God is consistent with the evidence that we have. That's more than he bothered to do in previous rounds, but as Law has pointed out, quote, 
In my experience, most Christians will rule an evil God out empirically to begin with. Obviously, there's no evil God. Look around you, they say. Or at least that's what they say until they realize the fatal consequences for their theism. On rationality, Randall has done little beyond claiming a consensus on his side, this time even adding an unsupported assertion that his views on testimony are uncontested among epistemologists. He's continued to assert my views are self-defeating, but I already explained why that's wrong, something he's ignored. On arguments for the existence of God, yeah, I know there are a couple arguments that address God's moral character. I talked about them in my opening statement. I was hoping Randall would defend the moral argument at least, but no such luck. He says he's defended it elsewhere, but the only article of his I can find on the subject, titled, If There Is No God, Then Everything Is Permissible, concedes the argument doesn't establish the existence of God. Randall also makes a big deal about there being dozens of arguments for God's existence, but having a lot of arguments doesn't show you have good arguments. He suggests the arguments could form a cumulative case where one argument may not show what it's supposed to show, but a second argument does. But that strategy only works if the second argument works. At this point, Randall may want to consider arguing that while his belief in God may be irrational, he's not necessarily representative of all theists. Unfortunately, the arguments Randall has used in this debate are all too typical of the arguments used by contemporary theistic philosophers. And if this is how leading defenders of theism argue, just think how much more irrational the average person's belief in God must be. Imagine that you run into Jenny, a fellow office worker at the water cooler. Looking to make small talk, you ask her, So Jenny, are you still dating Dave? No, she replies, I'm done with men, they're all pigs. Now, you would agree that some men are indeed pigs, but all of them, without question, you'd be forgiven for assuming that Jenny was engaging in a bit of hyperbolic water cooler venting. But what if she wasn't? What if she insisted that she was perfectly serious? What then? Well, given that many men don't fit the profile of a peccary, it's clear that the burden of proof is on Jenny's shoulders to demonstrate that all men are indeed pigs. And if she fails to provide adequate evidence to support this extraordinary claim, you'd properly conclude that Jenny is being irrational, not to mention sexist. Chris is in a similar position. His blushingly bold claim is that all theists are irrational, billions of them, including countless professionals at the highest echelons of their fields, scientists, philosophers, heads of state, all of them. And where's the evidence? Chris has repeatedly obsessed about the question of consensus in philosophy. He has provided survey data that a majority of philosophers are non-theists. Is that a consensus? Presumably, that depends on how one chooses to define a consensus. But two things are clear. First, having a graduate or postgraduate degree in philosophy doesn't ensure that you have informed opinions on the quality of arguments for all fields in philosophy. Consequently, broad surveys of the entire field are as likely to chart the changing of philosophical fashion as the real-world quality of specific arguments. Second, And more importantly, Chris has provided no survey data on the question of this debate. So how many philosophers think that theism is not only false, but also irrational for all people? That's the only survey question at all relevant to this debate. And on that topic, Chris is silent. What about his defeaters for theism? Here Chris's final response is extraordinary. 
He claims that he has chosen not to invoke any of his broad knowledge on the problem of evil because he doesn't think that's the proper way to behave in a debate. Is he joking? That's like saying punching isn't the proper way to behave in a boxing match. Thus far, I've addressed the problem of evil in general terms. Now let me get concrete and personal. I know a lady whose teenage son died of a terminal illness. She believes God had morally sufficient reasons for allowing her son to die. She also believes that as a limited, finite human being, she may not be able to understand those reasons, just like a four-year-old child can't understand the morally sufficient reasons his parents have to make him drink Buckley's cough syrup. Chris believes this mother is not only wrong, but also irrational to believe this, but he's provided nothing more than his own personal incredulity and support. As for the super-evil being argument, Chris perpetuates his misunderstanding by suggesting, yet again, that theists reason empirically from the properties of the world to the characteristics of the deity. As I pointed out in my initial response, most theists don't reason this way, and thus the super-evil being argument falls flat as a defeater. Since Chris failed to define rational belief in a way that doesn't terminate in skepticism and self-defeat, through the course of the debate we were left to work with my definitions. Positively, I defined a rational belief as a properly basic belief or a properly non-basic belief. Chris failed to offer any response to my assertion that theism could be properly basic by way of testimony, apart from suggesting that testimony cannot be a properly basic source of belief. But this is false, as I illustrated with the example of Jones coming to believe it is raining at his house based on his wife's testimony. As for properly non-basic belief, Chris did not even attempt to rebut the eight arguments for God's existence that I've defended in print, let alone the dozens of arguments defended by world-famous theistic philosophers and scientists. Chris says that having a lot of arguments doesn't show you have good arguments. True enough. But it is Chris who has asserted that all arguments for God's existence are so bad that they could not possibly be the evidential ground of properly non-basic theistic belief. So it is Chris who is obliged to provide the evidence to support his claim by demonstrating that all these arguments do in fact fail. This is not the time for Chris to hold back his knowledge and humility. This is the time to throw some punches. Instead, Chris has flailed about with non-sequiturs, bald assertions, and a stark confirmation bias that cavalierly dismisses the opinions of theistic philosophers. In a famous critique of a nation celebrating freedom while it perpetuates oppression, 19th century civil rights activist Frederick Douglass retorted, quote, At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed, unquote. Here, too, I think we need to appreciate the scorching irony in this case that a philosopher spending his time laboring to establish the irrationality of others while doing little more than casting a spotlight on his own. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.